Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, sponsored by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Battier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I am here today with Mark LaCour, Editor-in-Chief at the Oil & Gas Global Network. As all of you may be aware, OGGN is the largest, most listened to podcast network for the oil and gas industry, and we are actively growing that audience to include all energy. Now, for those of you who may not be as familiar with Mark and with OGGN, Mark releases predictions for the next year and has been doing so for, I think, eight years. This year, I wanted to get him on here on the Energy Transition Solutions podcast to discuss some of those predictions and how they pertain to the energy transition. So, Mark, thank you for joining me on the show today. I think everyone listening should know you, but just in case, share with me and the audience your background and a quick background to these yearly predictions you make. Yeah, so I've been in the oil and gas industry for 25 years. Um, I started my own company, Modal Point, about 15 years ago. About eight years ago, my marketing guy came to me and said we should start a podcast, and I told him that was a stupid idea. Nobody listens to those damn things. It's a true story. Obviously, I was wrong. Um, and we started the first oil and gas podcast in the world. Um, three months into it, Red Wing Boots called me said, hey, we want to sponsor your show. And I went, oh, my God, people listen to this stuff, and people are willing to pay for it. And that's kind of the beginning of this empire that we sit on now. I think we're at 15 or 16 shows today. We have four more we're launching in January with seven more on the books for uh, 2023. And even though we got our start in hydrocarbons, we think all energy – we don't think we know all energy is important. Um, we're, we're not, we don't have a bias where the energy comes from, and so we, lo- we love all energy. And so, um, the, once again, the whole reason that we have you running the Energy Transition Show is because of that. And you and I met years ago at a conference, and now we're here, and I'm on the other side of the microphone, which is awesome. Yep. Now, let's hear a little bit more about these predictions. How long have you been doing it? And recently, with these predictions, you gave some of the stats of your past years. Yeah. So this would be my ninth year of doing it, the ones I just released a couple weeks ago. Um, And and by the way, people, no stock investment on what I do, but everything that I predict is based upon my day-to-day dealings with the industry, uh, talking to industry leaders, doing research, understanding trends. I by no means have a crystal ball, so so no financial investments based on what I say. Um, It's really interesting, Joe, if you look at all, the last couple of years, except for 2022, I'm in the low 70 percent uh, uh, percentage of being correct, 71, 72 percent, and then I knocked it out the park in 2022. And honestly, it was a lot of it was luck. Um, I was about 80 percent correct for for 2022. Um, so we'll see what the future brings for 2023. Yeah, absolutely. And as we talk about that, let's get into these predictions. 
And I'm not going to go through all of them. There were a few key ones as I was listening and, and read back through them that I was like, oh, well, what about this? Or what about that? Or what about what about renewable energy or the energy transition? And so thank you for joining me. I, I want to talk about these. The first one that, that really sparked my interest was when you say the birth of the mega majors. You point out that Exxon, Chevron, Shell, and BP as being the super majors, all with unique cultures and different strategies going into the future. And you see that ultimately creating a split between Exxon and Chevron going more of a traditional hydrocarbon route and Shell and BP starting to diversify into renewables. Now, it's an interesting point you make, and it had me thinking a few thoughts on it myself. That first question, a more general question, you stated that as as Exxon and Chevron grow, you could see them having more leverage because now they're larger than everybody. But one thing that we all are seeing right now, and this is a U.S.-centric viewpoint, but we see governments and vendors and in some cases shareholders saying we want decarbonized business and we want to be investing in in low carbon energy how do you think that that emphasis on low carbon is going to impact this leverage that you think the these mega majors are going to have yeah so before i answer your questions real quick if your audience isn't aware the term super major basically means a company that that handles or makes money off all parts of the industry. So the upstream side of the industry, the midstream side of the industry, and downstream. So these four companies that Joe named all have make money by uh, exploration and production. They all make money because they have pipeline and infrastructure move stuff around. And they all make money when petrochemical plants or refineries, the downstream part. So the low carbon thing is we another place that, that Chevron and Exxon can leverage what they're doing. So, you know, you see in, uh, carbon capture and storage become bigger and bigger. You know, Exxon's kind of leading the way from a commercial point of view. Oxy's chasing them. Chevron's getting into it. Chevron's also getting heavy into low-carbon fuels, especially uh, fuel for, for aircraft. And so, once again, because they're growing bigger and they're going to have more capital and more leverage with their vendors and more leverage with governments, um, even their, their low-carbon businesses will benefit from that. Not to mention the additional capital they have to invest in that if they decide to do it. So, I, I, I think the low-carbon part plays naturally into them being more competitive than Shell and BP. And I want to be very clear here. The, this prediction isn't a judgment or isn't a political stance. It's literally a financial observation that BP and Shell chose to put money into renewables. Um, and it, it paid off in some ways, especially from a PR and a, and a low-carbon future. Uh, you know, Shell is doing really well attracting talent, better than the other uh, super majors because of that. But you're starting to see windfall taxes in Europe come out, and it's going to limit BP and Shell's ability to take these margins they make from their hydrocarbon business and put in renewables. It's, it's really a, uh, it's going to be, it's, it's, and that may hurt them even more than their decision to invest their revenues into renewables early on, whereas Chevron and Exxon decided to invest their money back into the hydrocarbon business. So it's 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 a mess. But but I, I think it's still going to allow them to leverage the low carbon business better, more profitably than, than Shell and BP. Yeah, that's an interesting point you make because it, it, as you were talking, I was thinking about the, the waves of business and the waves of the economy that, that you, you can make this comparison to. And it's almost like you want to catch that wave just right. 
And yep. as you're talking about the, the, I guess, significant influx of revenue that that Exxon and Chevron can have, they can now invest that now when the market is mature and when the technologies from startups are mature, where they can go in and immediately be cash flow positive or or commercial with something in the low carbon space, as opposed to Shell and BP who were investing heavily and maybe investing R&D money to develop these technologies themselves and are a little bit maybe not behind the curve, but they were, they were ahead of the wave. Yeah, much riskier their their approach. Um, I fully expect Chevron and Exxon to wait for a few of these large renewable companies to be on the edge of bankruptcy and to pick them up for pennies on the dollar. Um, it's no different than what they do with assets in the oil field, right? Uh, they're very good at that sort of stuff. And to your point, Shell and BP is kind of ahead of the curve financially. Uh, kind of ahead of the curve in public relations, kind of ahead of the curve in new technologies and new uh, processes. But it doesn't mean that Chevron and Exxon can't catch up with, with a couple of good strategic acquisitions. Mm. Now, speaking of acquisitions and kind of going along this this thought process, one thing that you may have noticed, Chevron has made significant investments and announcements specifically in geothermal investments in baseload capital, ever technologies, and several international projects. I think that is that is something of interest. And in a similar way, there was, I guess, the the significant speculation surrounding Exxon with their Gulf of Mexico bids, I guess, almost a year ago now, or a little more than a year ago now, thinking that those major investments were into CCS opportunities, not necessarily oil and gas opportunities. So, so, so they're both, but they specifically bid on blocks in the Gulf of Mexico for carbon storage. They're, they're not trying to get hydrocarbons out. They know that, right? The, and the industry knows that. Um, and it takes somebody with the engineering might and the project management and, and um, abilities of somebody like Exxon to do this at scale, which is mm-hmm. which if, you, if you're going to start pulling carbon dioxide out of the air and start using it commercially for different things, it has to be done at scale. You have to be able to move it from here to Singapore. And I'm kind of making that up, but you need to be able to move it around before it becomes commercially viable. And Exxon's probably the best project management engineering company on the planet to pull something like this off. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. So sticking with CCS, one thing that, and I'm going to group a few of your different predictions together. I'm going to group CCS with more broadly the anti-renewable movement that you predict with one kind of major question, again, U.S.-centric. Recently, we've seen the bipartisan infrastructure law and the Inflation Reduction Act. Both of these have significant funding going into CCS, decarbonization, renewable energy projects, and renewable energy demonstration and production in general. One major caveat to this, as my day job, I'm I'm part of a consulting company, and we we read all of these and look at the how to go about applying for these funds. And one of the major caveats for these demonstration level projects, those that are getting money to build and put infrastructure in place, those require a 20 to 50% match. Now, with all of this, you have the government saying, we want renewable, low-carbon energy, but the anti-renewable movement, you have 
private investment saying we don't we don't want to invest in this. So I guess how do you think this plays out? How do we actually get that twenty to fifty percent match to have the government and private industry play nice together? Yes, yeah, so let me let me be very clear on my prediction on this anti-renewable movement. Once again, not politics, not opinion, just looking at what I think is going to happen in the market. We're in a, the world's in an energy crisis right now. Um, and and the Ukraine-Russian conflict accelerated it, but it was happening before. In fact, that's one of the predictions I got right in 2022. And I did that in November of 2021, predicting 2022 would be an energy crisis. And we are. And we will be for the next two years. And Joe, it's almost human nature. It's one thing to try to make the world a better place when you're comfortable. It's another thing when you can't feed your kids and you're cold. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, especially our world's poor people, a lot of them, especially in Europe, it's going to be hell this winter, and next winter is going to be worse. And what has happened is, and, and I love renewables, what has happened is because of politics, the right business decisions on where you deploy renewables, how you deploy them, how you make sure that baseload is still there while you're building out the renewable infrastructure, it wasn't done right. And so while the people are, are worried and cold and scared and they can't feed their kids, they're look. I'm afraid they're going to look at renewables and go, this is not the way to go, which I am very against. Our, my biggest issue with energy as a whole is we politicized it. We need. If I had a magic wand, I would just disconnect politics from energy because the world geographically, uh, geologically, uh, is is different. Some places wind is great. Some places it sucks. Some places solar great. Some places it sucks. You can burn hydrocarbons responsibly. And, and we can do this where we protect the environment, and every energy source has some type of impact. In every energy source, you can mitigate that impact. Now, what does it make sense financially is the real question. So, so to answer this is I, I think you're going to see – so first thing, for 100%, you saw a lot of investment money pulled off the table for oil and gas uh, companies because of ESG metrics, right? Unless they could hit certain ESG metrics, they weren't going to get investor money. And that was driven by shareholders and investor sentiment, right? Well, that happened during 2022. Well, the oil and gas industry exploded in growth in 2022. It is crazy, the margins, right? Um, and so the investors saw that they missed out on an opportunity. Now, investors may want to save the planet just like I do, but at the same time, they have a duty to whoever is providing their capital to make a good return on their investment. So what I, what you're seeing happen now is they're coming back, even though the same ESG metrics haven't really changed, they're coming back and going, look, this is a great market opportunity. We're going to invest in oil and gas. The pot of money that you can invest in energy infrastructures is finite. So, you know, if you have $100 to invest and you can invest $50 in renewables, $50 in oil and gas, that's great. Right now, the return on oil and gas is better. And combine that with, I think, this pushback on renewables through, through no fault of the renewal companies at all because of the world's in energy shorts. And, and I think the renewable side of the house is going to struggle getting a lot of things funded, which is not what I want to have happen. I, I, you know, I, I want the money to go where it needs to go. The renewable industry in a lot of places is still in its infancy. Um, it can't stand on its own in a lot of places on the free market. And I want to subsidize that until they can stand on their own. And I'm a little worried that this Inflation, this, uh, inflation Reduction Act – which, by the way, who named that thing? But anyway, I'm a little worried that the, the IRA is going to be one of the last big pushes financially from the U.S. government into the renewable sector. I hope I'm wrong about that, by the way. Yeah. When I saw that and as I was preparing these notes, one of the things that that keeps coming up is the the Recovery Act that was in 
2008 or 2009, there was this major push in that as well for renewable energy. And one of the big things and one of the examples everybody always points to are all of the algae biofuel companies. And there were there were hundreds of millions of dollars, potentially, if I'm remembering that correctly, that were going into algae biofuels. And you look today of the, say, 100 companies that were funded, maybe there's five left. And that's a big concern because there's all of this money and it feels like we are, we're swimming in, in pools. We're all Scrooge McDuck right now, swimming in our big yeah. pools of gold. But when that dries up, we better have a, a business model or a power plant that generates electricity and, and makes money. <laughs> You want to you want to guess who's the one company that's actually um, getting ready to break even on using algae for biofuels? They're not profitable yet, but they're gonna break even. I think that's Exxon, isn't it? Yep, Exxon. Isn't that cool? Yeah. And what's cool about that? And I don't want to get deep into the chemistry or, or, or all that stuff, but one of the problems with oil and gas production is produce water, and to be able to actually grow algae that produce water and, and produce fuels and at the same time clean that water up is is like that's the holy grail. That is amazing. Now, don't get me wrong, people. It, the algae doesn't clean it up to the point that you can drink it, but it cleans it up. It's a step in the right direction. Hmm. Very interesting. So the next, the next two or three predictions that you had, I, I'm again lumping together. You said that we will continue to have the energy shortage, but we're also going to see a slowing in shale growth, and we're also going to see a slowing in renewable energy growth. So yeah. if we have this energy shortage and we need more power, I guess the question is, where is the energy going to come from? And And before you answer, I know you said... You mentioned offshore oil as the next point, and offshore is going to boom. But I guess isn't offshore a very long timeline? Yes, 100%. Um, However, what happens is these offshore projects have been in the work for decades. They never stop. They slow down. They speed up. And and, and basically, unless you're in an extreme environment, so let's take Gulf of Mexico – from the moment they make a discovery until they actually finish drilling and they build a production rig to get those hydrocarbons back to land is around 10 years, right? Which means that all the people that are doing that work have to continually be looking out what's going to bring for the next 10 years. COVID stopped those, those projects that were in the works, but now they're coming back on full steam. So we have this whole backlog of offshore projects that were stopped or delayed because of COVID that are now coming back with a whole bunch of capital behind it. But to back up a little bit, to, to f- fix this world's energy shortage, it's all about speed. What is the quickest way for me to get you energy, right? And unfortunately, coal is about the quickest way to do it. Mm-hmm. And and nothing against my coal people out there. I know you can burn coal clean. Unfortunately, the companies that want to burn coal clean are typically here and in Europe, not in the rest of the world. The rest of the world literally just burns coal and let, vents it to the atmosphere, which is not good for the planet. But it's the quickest way to provide energy. So you're seeing a lot of coal come back online, even in parts of Europe who are moving away from coal because it's their only choice. Right behind that is going to be LNG and crude oil. Uh, The LNG facilities here in the U.S. are 
not quite mature, but mature enough that we can export LNG around the world. What's missing is the import facilities in the rest of the world to take that LNG, and then the regasification facilities past the import terminals so they can take the LNG and put in their systems. That's being built right now. So the world's using coal and building new coal-powered power plants to ease this energy crisis. Right behind that's going to come LNG, and then renewables can start filling the spots if, number one, the capital is there, and if, number two, the renewable industry realizes that only certain types of renewable fit certain type of situations, right? The whole the old way of just blanking the, the you know, Wyoming with wind and solar, that doesn't make fiscal sense. You got to figure out what works. So, so you're going to see, unfortunately, coal, coal you're, not, you're seeing it right now, coal has come back, you're going to see LNG start providing, which is great, because switching from coal and LNG is like, I don't know, an 80% mm-hmm. <laughs> drop in emissions and 60% drop in CO2 emissions. And then at some point, where it makes sense, renewables will come in and add to that mix. Yeah, I, I think I saw maybe two weeks ago an article about uh, just individuals in the countryside of somewhere in the UK are starting to go and harvest peat from their their peat bogs because they can't pay for, for gas, but they have this basically immature coal that they can go and burn and use that to heat their houses. Joe, a lot of the world's starting to burn wood again. Like that's not, that's going the wrong direction. Um, same way with stuff like fuel oil. Uh, a lot of older homes on the upper East coast still use fuel oil to heat their home. That is nasty stuff. And trust me, when you have a fuel oil furnace in your house and, and, you know, in Maine somewhere, there's no catalytic converter on that. You're venting those particulates straight to the atmosphere. It's not good. Yeah. Um, and then you're seeing, um, um, Local governments and even sometimes state governments starting to want to ban uh, natural gas as a way to heat people's homes. That is ridiculous because if they can't burn natural gas, they're either going to burn electricity, which we don't have enough of, or they to your point, they're going to burn peat. That is not good for the environment whatsoever. You know, so it's one thing to have something in theory. It's another thing. What is? How does the rubber hit the road? And once again, when people are cold and hungry, they're going to do what it takes to survive. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Well, I've got one more big question before we move to the final questions. Now, shale has been a primary investment avenue for, say, the past 10 or so years in the oil and gas industry. You see this slowing down. I agree with that. I think it it makes sense. But you also predict that capital is going to get easier for companies to get. And we also talk about offshore booming, the offshore cycle kind of long, but potentially there's there's value now and opportunity because of COVID kind of slowing everything down. So there's this backlog. I guess this is a, a very long roundabout way of saying, where do you think this easy capital is going to be going in in the yep. next near term? All right, so let's talk about two different things. So in the U.S., and, and your audience may not know this, most of the oil and gas that's produced is not produced by Exxon and Chevron. Over 90% of the hydrocarbons produced in the U.S. is produced by small independent operators. And that's anything from like a two-man shop to maybe somebody like uh, the size of like, you know, Devon Energy, which is an independent operator. Um, so what's happened in that world, they don't have enough capital to fund growth. 
And so what traditionally is done to your point for the last 10 years, about probably more like 15 years, is they would drill a well. They would show the production numbers, which has a financial um, figure to it. They would then show the investors or the bank or the venture capital guys or whatever what that well was making from a money point of view. And they would use that to borrow more money to drill another well, right? And so the idea for the last decade or so has been growth in the shell fields, right? That's almost like a Ponzi scheme, right? It's 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 almost like a multi-level marketing, like an Amway, because at some point, somebody's not making a profit if all you're doing is borrowing money to grow and using the growth numbers to borrow the money. And so the industry figured out before COVID hit that that wasn't long-term sustainable. And so the investors came back and go, we're, we're not going to fund growth anymore. We're going to fund profits. Like, I don't care if you grow. I want you to make a profit, which is much sounder business model. And so then COVID happened and kind of delayed everything. So what's happening is um, all these people that that uh, missed out on the returns in 2022 investing in oil and gas, they're coming back with a vengeance, regardless of what their views are on ESG. And they're investing back in oil and gas, but they're investing back in make sure the companies are profitable, which is a longer-term strategy for uh, that pays off for everybody. It pays off better for the investor, pays off better for the oil and gas company. It pays off better for the environment, right? Because now I'm not just blowing and going. Now I have to make a profit. And if I get fined by somebody from having to spill or whatever, that takes away from my profit. So that's, that's what's changing is that's that's where that capital is going now that's one world and that's where a lot of the hydrocarbons are produced in the US you have this other world of big complex huge capital intensive projects and this is the domain that the independents can't play in because they're not good enough this is where Exxon and Shell and BP and Chevron shine you know a, a, a deep water project uh, in in say uh, um, you know um, the North Sea by the time they drill that well and go to production that may be 90 billion dollars, not million dollars, billion dollars of investment for one project. And that project has a life cycle of 50 to to maybe 75 to 100 years. And you have to deploy that capital. But the thing is, they have the capital internally. They don't have to borrow it. So once again, I'm going to tie this back to the growth of the mega majors. With Chevron and Exxon growing and having a better balance sheet and having more capital, they can do more of these large, complex projects, which which yield more profits, right? But now the shell fields are going to benefit from the capital coming back that disappeared after COVID, and they're going to catch up too. What's keeping the shell fields from growing is a couple of things. One is all the stuff we're dealing with right now, supply chain constraints, mm-hmm. uh, personnel. They can't hire people right now. Um um, the the worry about what our current administration is going to do politically to, to what's happening on land. I mean, if you're an investor or if you're running an independent operation and you're not sure if they're going to let you have drilling permits next year or not, you could do nothing, right? So this year's going to be slow for Shell. If what I think happens is going to happen, by 2024, you can see it flip. And you can see the unconventionals on land explode in growth, not just here, all over the world. That shale, oh, you know this. Who am I talking to? The this shale geology is all over the world. The problem is they can't get it out the ground and make a profit yet. But we're, we're getting there, right? As the technologies and process improve, as the world builds infrastructures like roads and pipelines, you can see the unconventionals boom in a couple of years, I think. But but we got to get there. So yeah. I don't, I'm not sure if that answers your, your question or not. No, I think it it's, yeah, it's an interesting take and and definitely helps under, helps explain it a little bit. And I think it's, it's uh, interesting to think about the way that kind of the rest of the world works most places all of the mineral rights are with the government or with with the country 
And really, the only people who get to operate there are the are the large international oil companies, your Exxon, Shell, BP. Are the nationalized oil companies. So, you know, so maybe the country itself owns the, yeah. the oil, that part of the oil and gas industry. And that's a really interesting dichotomy because, you know, a lot of places in the world, take the Middle East um, where it's all nationalized oil, field, oil companies, they subsidize fuel prices to keep fuel prices low um, for, to make their people happy. And then they use the profits of those big oil companies to create social program, programs to keep their young people working so their young people won't radicalize. It's it's a really – so they have this social cost that nobody talks about or really understands that adds – that reduces their, their profit margins, but it's the only way they can keep their civilization running. It, it's it's really interesting world out there. Um, the other thing to your point is – all these areas of the world that that have hydrocarbons that need exploration, production, and and the best companies to come in there and help them with that are the American European super majors. We care about the environment. Um, if we have an accident, you know, whether that's a spill or somebody gets a finger pinch or whatever, we report it. We do a root cause analysis. We clean it up. What you don't want around the world is countries like China and Russia, who I know from personal experience don't care. Mm. When they make a spill, number one, you never hear it. How many Russian or Chinese oil spills have you heard of in your life? Not a single one. That means one of two things. That means they're either better at it than us and the Europeans, or they don't tell. And I'm telling you, I've seen it with my own eyes. They don't tell. So, you know, whether you're a fan of the hydrocarbon industry or not, if you're worried about our planet and our environment, you want the American and European super majors to be doing a lot of this work because they will make sure nothing bad happens. Yep. Absolutely. Well, I know that we didn't cover all of your predictions. Are there any that you wanted to, that you were expecting me to ask about or any that you think are particularly relevant for the energy transition? Um, so one of the things I think that that's important to understand is I think next year is going to be a record year for the oil and gas industry all, all around the world. We're in this energy shortage. Hydrocarbons are a quick fix. Um, prices are, are staying high. Uh, the way we've handled – the way the G7 uh, nations have handled the price cap with Russian oil is genius. We allow them to make enough profit so they can keep their oil in the market so we don't have a shortage, but not enough to fund their, their war machine. And so one of the things I suspect is going to happen 25, 2025, 2026 is all this money that the oil and gas industry is going to make – once they start, once they uh, buy back their debt, and once they return to doing dividends, once they make their investors happy, their employees happy, I think you can see a lot more intelligent investment in renewables. But it's going to be investment to make a profit, and that sounds kind of um, selfish. It's not. You want this money to go in renewable businesses that can make money, that can stand on their own two feet. It's the only way they're going to stay around. Um, and then, like I said. I love renewable energy, and I want more of it in our world's mix. But we got to disconnect politics. And I, and when I look at, especially Chevron and Exxon, when I look at their history over the last fifty years, they do they make smart decisions. Whether it's in that current year popular with the public or not, they don't care. The whole lithium-ion battery that was invented by Exxon. Why? Because they operate in the middle of freaking nowhere, and they needed reliable power sources that weren't based on lead and acid. Um, so I, I think you can see the renewable movement. Even though I said there's going to be an anti-renewable pushback because people are cold and hungry and desperate, 
I think in a about a decade or so, I think you could see renewals in a totally different world. Mm-hmm. I think you could see them profitable. They're going to be competitive with other sources of energy. In fact, some places they'll be more competitive than whatever we're using now. I think we'll have the process and the techniques iron out. We just got to get our politicians out of the way. Mm. Well, with that, I want to transition into the final questions. These are the questions I ask all of my guests. That first question being, what's a favorite book of yours that you would recommend? Ooh, Principal Sitter and Leadership by Stephen Covey. I actually met him. He's a seven habits guy. Um, I actually met him in person. I actually was taught to him by his team. Um, totally changed the way I look at things. Totally changed the way I not only try to lead our company, but the way I, I parent my child. You know, it's, it is, what is, what is the line that Joe won't cross, right? Then back up from that. Let's say it's money. Let's say you won't take a bribe, right? Let's back up from that. Why won't you take a bribe? Because it it's it goes against your principles. What else goes against your principles? And I'm telling Joe, I've I've had to make some hard decisions um, based upon my principles with this business, and it's only benefited me. Mm-hmm. It's it and it, and it's scary, right? When you have a a huge Fortune 100 client that does something that you don't agree with, and you go, you know what? I, I got to sever our relationship. But it always comes back and helps. So that's probably one of the, the biggest books that's that's impacted my life, both personally and professionally. Hmm. That's a good one. I've gotten Stephen Covey recommendations multiple times. I still haven't read any of his books, but I will one day. <laughs> well, so, so a little bit of it's outdated. So The Seven Habits is really good. But that was written, I think, in the early 80s, maybe mid-80s. And I still like it, um, but it doesn't apply to today's modern world. Back when he wrote that, you had no inbox. There was no email when he wrote that. So your business communication tool was the telephone. There was no voicemail, right? So people had to catch you live. Um, now you have so much inbound information coming in um, that that some of his, I think, seven habits could need to be tweaked or improved. But as as a whole, he took a bunch of stuff that was very complex and made it very simple to understand. And that was genius. Hmm. All right. The next question, when will we be net zero as a society? So that net zero thing means different things to different people. In my world, it's simple math. How much carbon dioxide goes out? How much do you sequester or, or don't produce? And when that number is zero, you're net zero. Um, so CO2 levels have been falling here and in Europe for, for 20 years. Uh, we're, we're, we're getting to the point where we can start economically pulling CO2 out the air. Uh, the world's warming up right now, uh, which you're seeing an increase in plankton, uh, which is one of the biggest uh, uh, biggest groups to pull CO2 out the air. Um, I would think, I would think if we could stay on the present track that we are on right now, I would think in maybe not by 2050, but 2070, 2080, we could be net zero. All right. I think you're the, one of the only people who has thought about it and said, okay, let me do a, a quick calculation in my head based on everything. Well, you, you know that I, a lot of this stuff, I, I, I do a lot of research on. I try to understand it. Um, it's hard, and, and and there's so many variables. But I'm aware of how things actually work. And and I, to your point, I try to make calculations and estimates and 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 you know professional guesses based upon the facts and the figures, not how I feel, which is actually a really hard thing to do. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Especially with that question, because a lot of it, a lot of it, and even if you look at 
if you look at the science of of the climate warming and all of the charts and and what they show is this exponential increase. Well, if we're talking about an exponential increase, then how do you predict that? And how do you predict the way that you can mitigate that or be removing CO2 from the atmosphere? And once you start thinking about the math of all of that, it starts to uh, basically all that to say, everybody always says it, it ultimately comes down to how badly we want it whether it's how smart we are, how badly we're hurting, or or what we are feeling at that time. That's kind of the way everybody takes the question. I think there's another variable in there. Companies are going to start or have been making money off CO2. Mm-hmm. Um, CO2 has been used to enhance oil recovery for years. Companies like Enbridge Pipeline would uh, basically drill into volcanoes. I know that sounds like a sci-fi movie. I'm, I'm, I'm making it super simple. But they would grab CO2 out the ground and sell it. Um, CO2, regardless of what your beliefs are about its impact on climate change, is going to become commercial. And and that, and if you believe CO2 is – or increased CO2 emissions it doesn't is negative for the planet – Making it a commercial product is probably the quickest way to fix it, right? It's it, because all of a sudden you can make money. In fact, we got to be careful. We don't want to pull too much CO two out the air because then we're gonna have the opposite problem. Yeah, yeah. It's a uh, it's an interesting conundrum, and hopefully we don't overcorrect. It really is. Yeah, it really, really is. There's so many different parts of it, um, and and one of the things, once again, it's one of those, those one that's one of those things that we need to disconnect politics from. If there's a problem, let's look at it, let's measure it, let's figure out how to mitigate it. Let's not tax extra the cement that's being imported to build the windmill. Like, that is ridiculous. Like, like let's look at it like an economic problem and we can fix it. Yeah, very interesting. So the last question, you actually get to ask me a question now. What's it like, your journey with OGGN? Ooh, I've never been, well, I've been asked, similar questions but the journey with OGGN it has been it has been fun and I think that whenever anybody asks about like oh what do you think of podcasting I think it it is absolutely one of the best things to do everybody should be doing a podcast or at least forcing themselves to go and talk to people and if you say you're going to get to have your story out there for for eternity or thereabouts and anybody can go and listen to it i think that gets you gets you a little bit more on who you get to talk to so having a platform to go and talk about this stuff is is fantastic and and i think without oggn i would not have that platform so i think that is that has been fun to have and the opportunities that it opens up in terms of attending things like Sarah Week and the people I get to talk to, it it's really been fulfilling, insightful, um, personally growing, and also intellectually growing, and and also inspiring and challenging, kind of everything all at the same time. Yeah. Don't tell your other peers this. I don't know how many of them listen to your show, but we've grown so big that I can't listen to everybody's show. So I spot listen to everybody's show, but you're one of the shows that I listen to every single episode. 
Like, I love your show. And that has nothing to do with the fact that we work together and you're part of OGN. I just love your show. Well, thank you very much. Anybody who does listen to the show who's also a host, sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> my show's better. <laughs> I'm joking, of course. So, Mark, thank you for joining me on the show today. Before we sign off, is there anything else that you'd like to say? Um, so for a lot of your younger listeners um, who are really concerned about things like climate, um, it's going to be okay. I, I, I was amazed, Joe. You know, I, I disagree with a lot of people, right? I was amazed at how many young people carry stress, like sincere chronic stress that they think the world's going to disappear tomorrow or, or, or burn up or whatever. And it's and it's not, people. Um w- as a species, we're good at fixing stuff. And so whatever's going on, we will fix it. And I'm not saying that climate change isn't happening. That's for another show. Um, I'm just saying, don't stress. It's not It's not something that you should be you know, laying awake at night and, and, uh, and being fearful of. It's going to be okay. I promise you. Yep. I, I hear you. And I think climate and climate change is either number two or number three among anxiety-inducing fears for for the um they're calling them zoomers i think whatever generation is is it generation really? z yeah i think that's what what i saw the other the other day and to your point absolutely it is if you are stressing out about it that much i i don't usually condone trying to control things but if that is a, a concern then then go out and fix it right if you if you're yeah. totally stressed out about it then join the renewable energy industry do something that you think is making a positive impact and that should that should help you be a little less stressed yeah yeah it's it's just it's i, I was shocked that it's affecting people's health and it it shouldn't be yeah trust me you would much better off live today than 500 years ago where, where you worry about dying from cold or thirst or starvation, right? So we're in a good place. Mm. Well, with that, Mark, thank you for joining me on the show. And thank you, everyone, for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, share it with a friend and leave a review telling me what you're enjoying most or what you want to hear more of. If you want more news and energy-related stories, we have all sorts of energy-related podcasts on OGGN. You can find them by connecting with us on LinkedIn or visiting OGGN.com. One more thing, I have a quick favor to ask. I have a one-question survey that I want you to go fill out. The link will be in the show notes. Please go fill that out. And if you do, we can send you some stickers. Finally, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, send me an email or find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.